Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored to be joined this week by Dr. Brian Cole, who's the Associate Chairman at uh, Rush University uh, Medical Center for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And then he's also the managing partner of Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. So Dr. Cole, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Great. So maybe give us a little bit of background, you know, just briefly, like where you went to school, where you did your training, and then what your main clinical practice focus is on right now. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, about 25 years in practice. I'm at uh, Rush University Medical Center. The formal name of our group is Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Uh, I trained at uh, the University of Chicago, where I uh, got my MD and my MBA, uh, sort of simultaneously, and then uh, went to uh, the hospital for special surgery uh, for uh, residency. I did a year of general surgery before that, like most of us who go into surgery, and uh, did a year of research in metabolic bone disease while at HSS, and then finish up with my fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh with uh, Freddie Fu, uh, Chris Harner, and J.P. Warner in 97. So I've been in Chicago ever since and uh, have enjoyed a, a really uh, wonderful practice in sports medicine as well as uh, a, a private sort of academic environment uh, with a with a very terrific group, uh, multi-specialty group in Chicago. Awesome. Thanks for giving us that overview. I think for the the listeners who may be a little bit unaware of you know, your practice and maybe just to also, you know, who those who are aware so they can learn a little bit more, maybe tell us about the logistics of, you know, how your guys practices work up. It, it sounds like it's a physician run private practice, but you also serve as an academic department at Rush University. Maybe give us a little bit of background how that works. So Rush University Medical Center is a non, non-for-profit classic hospital uh, situation where they have multiple departments and we're the department of orthopedics and pretty much embody all, virtually all orthopedic surgeons on staff at Rush, but we are a group that's uh, about 35 years old that has always been a private independent practice with a very symbiotic relationship with an academic medical center. So while we, the practice of medicine is uh, somewhat separate and distinct, we share uh, contracts. There's the ACGME residency and fellowship programs, research, philanthropy, uh, some branding uh, are things that we do together in addition to uh, taking care of uh, sports franchises and uh, 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 co-marketing agreements that we might have as well in, in that area. So I think, you know, we're fortunate that we've been allowed to function in a very independent way, uh, but sort of find the best parts of each organization to see where we could have uh, really uh, good synergies. It's not without challenges, 
the hospital situation is becoming increasingly challenging as uh, things sort of uh, um, migrate to the ambulatory care setting where uh, in ASCs or ambulatory surgical centers, you know, that's different than what goes on in the hospital for inpatient facilities and so facility fees. So, you know, the hospital, many hospitals are finding themselves in significant with significant challenges related to human resources, maintaining uh, nursing and anesthesia uh, as and, and maintaining the, the viability and the schedules of the operating room. And in addition to, you know, sort of typical service lines that they have to be responsible to. So, uh, we've been able to remain nimble, but uh, sort of interdependent on one another for various aspects. And, you know, we all, we each have our own respective challenges, uh, and we try to find areas that we can partner together. So none of these relationships are always perfect, but I think we do as well as anyone in the country in maintaining a sort of a synergy and a, a symbiotic uh, relationship for clinical practice. That's awesome. I'm curious, are, are you guys the only department that are set up like this at Rush or is this something that's that's common at Rush? Are there other departments set up like yeah, this? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, so uh, anesthesia for some time was, yeah, I think it actually still is considered an independent, uh, it's, they call it Rush Anesthesia, Rush University Anesthesia, but it's, uh, it is an independent private group. So, but most every other service line is uh, a full service line that is within uh, the walls of Rush in terms of how they contract and what their obligations are to the hospital. So it's, it's not a common model. And uh, it does, again, it does pose challenges when we sort of have to deal with our own business lines and we don't always see eye to eye and our missions may be different. So it's not without challenge, but we, we have made it work for a long time. And we, you know, we, through, you know, a lot of discussion and uh, transparency, we, you know, can navigate these things, I think with very little difficulty. That's interesting. You know, it's interesting you bring up uh, ambulatory surgery centers. I'm curious, do you, does your practice own some of those independently of of Rush University or is that or are those through the university health system as well? So, you know, our first uh, ambulatory surgery center is a, was a, uh, uh, a joint venture with uh, Rush uh, on campus that's probably 30, 35 years old. And um, that was at a time where we really didn't have a good understanding of the ASC environment. We weren't doing arthroplasty and spine uh, in an outpatient setting. And there were only a few clinicians that were doing outpatient cases, such as sports, hand uh, and um, uh, foot and ankle. And that was pretty much it for a long time. Uh, however, over the last 15 years, there's uh, because one reimbursement allows the opportunity to do outpatient spine, outpatient spine, outpatient joints, uh, and two people are becoming more comfortable in facile. We, uh, independently have gone out and uh, developed our own ASC uh, initiative. So we now have seven ASCs that are in part owned by individuals and or the group uh, Midwest Orthopedics. And uh, we do still partner with some with Rush. And um, many of them we just simply do on our own, uh, perhaps with the collaboration with the management company to some lesser or greater extent. Interesting. You know, I'm curious during these, you know, ever these times where, you know, you hear about these healthcare systems, both private and academic, you know, buying up hospitals and buying up ASCs and things like that. I think what is, what do you feel like rush your practice has done well to kind of still remain, you know, an independent group without having to be, you know, essentially gobbled up by some of these other, you know, larger systems, if you will. As, as we look for sustainability, there's either a defensive strategy to maintain the status quo. Um, and then there are offensive strategies, which involve real growth and keep in mind that growth can be defensive as well. So in the Chicagoland area, we've been faced with a lot of uh, consolidation. 
So uh, there, there, is, there are important benefits that come from size, uh, not just scale, but uh, the ability to uh, negotiate uh, and have a, a dialogue with payers uh, is very critical uh, to have enough of a, a geographic swatch of coverage that you can be relevant to a payer in terms of uh, providing, you know, access to, you know, to their, to their clients, to, you know, to patients. Um, it allows us to uh, negotiate um, uh, at the ASC level for contract rates and so forth. So, uh, and then there's economies of scale that happen with size, you know, it, it, it has become so almost irrationally uh, costly to, run a practice, if you look at what it takes to get out of the gates, there's a fixed cost that's required that relates to physical plant, um, insurance, uh, malpractice, um, uh, technology, IT, um, the entire infrastructure to run a practice is large, whether or not you have five or 30 individuals. So because there's this sort of known fixed cost that isn't even particularly marginal, you realize that you have to have a certain size to absorb uh, from an overhead perspective to really make a go at it. So the way we've done it is we've always had organic growth where we grow responsibly with fellowship trained surgeons and, and non-surgeons. We have, you know, a hundred providers, about 50 advanced practitioners and 50 uh, physicians, about 35 to 40 of whom are surgeons, but we have non-surgeons, physiatry, primary care sports, a chiropractor um, and, and, that sort of complements the surgeons themselves. We're about 800 employees now, and uh, we have 17 physical therapy centers, seven offices, seven ASCs. Uh, every facility has MRI or advanced imaging and so forth. So in order to you know remain, uh, to have a sustainable business model as an independent practice, you can't really do it on professional revenues alone. In other words, seeing patients and even uh, uh, having you know reimbursement that comes from doing surgery is barely enough to keep the lights on given the cost of practice. So it really requires having uh, an integrated system where we participate in you know all aspects of care related. You know, it could be perioperative education, it could be nutrition, it could be bracing and, and DME, and it, and it obviously involves having access to ASCs whereby we have ownership as well as physical therapy. So it, it's it's nearly impossible now to maintain independence financially without having verticals as part of your practice. It just, it just doesn't work. The economics don't work. You know, we're in the one profession where um, the cost of uh, doing business continues to go up um, every single year and the re revenue side stays the same or goes down. Um, the margins every year for private practice continue to get slimmer and slimmer. And what we experience is honestly no different than the hospitals. They have different forces. Hospitals are facing the same, you know, post-COVID, facing the same uh, uh, headwinds, if you will, uh, and and even more so if they were not prepared for the existing ambulatory surgery center environment, though they have trouble maintaining their margins just because the sheer volume of uh, things that go through the hospital system uh, to keep it sustained uh, has been decreasing exponentially in various health health systems. That's really interesting. You know, so I mean, Matt, you know, building those vertical service lines that you talked about, do, giving a comprehensive care to the patient. Um, it's interesting that you know, I imagine as managing partner you're probably as much a doctor as you are a, a businessman. I'm, I'm, you know, I know you mentioned earlier, you said you got your MBA. 
uh, while you're in medical school. I'm curious, how have you picked up kind of that that business acumen as you've gone along? Is that something you've picked up along or done some extra like education or training for? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I did my business school during medical school because I was accustomed to being um, a student. So it was a good time from that perspective. And economically, it worked um, because of, you know, scholarship and so forth. But from a knowledge point of view, it's probably not the best time to do it. And because I really had no idea how I would use it and I didn't really know what to focus on. So I did a general MBA with in health administration. So while the principles were very useful and I learned a lot at university of Chicago, I would say that it's really been learning along the way and it's everything from contracts to organizations, um, leadership, um, understanding the, the, the payer landscape reimbursement, uh, coding, medical liability, contract liability. I mean, there's just a, 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 any number of things that go on that are related to business. I still love seeing patients. I mean, my days, you know, a typical Monday uh, when we're, you know, taping this episode uh, would be, you know, I'll start at uh, first meeting at 630 in the morning. That's a business meeting, another one hour meeting from seven to eight, another one from eight to eight thirty, and then I'll see 65, 70 patients. And then when the day is over, teach a resident conference and then have um, perhaps another couple of calls and follow up with a, you know, with, with athletes that, you know, may have been injured or there's ongoing activities and answering phone calls and that can go until eight, eight or nine o'clock at night. And that's a very typical Monday. Um, the business side of it is something that occurs throughout the day. And, you know, our, our best place probably is still, you know, seeing patients and doing the day, you know, doing what we do best, but, uh, having clinicians involved in, uh, the day-to-day decision-making in, in addition to having a C-level, the CEO, CFO, and so forth um, is a good balance because I think in the, having one or the other, but not both can be particularly challenging. So I don't think a physician's best place if he isn't interested in clinical practice is to be the CEO of a practice, but to be managing partner and work collaboratively with an executive team of other physicians, as well as your C-level people, I think that's a good recipe, at least it is for us, uh, to to maintain a sense of sustainability. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you essentially have like a physician, you know, the partner's a governing body, if you will, and then you have a, a non-clinical, you know, executive team as well. I think I think that's, that's really exactly interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. Interesting. I guess the other thing I'm curious about is, you know, I know you, you guys are a high volume, you know, practice, but you also have, you know, excellent, you know, residency and fellowship programs as well. Do a lot of research, orthopedic research as well, you know, publish a lot of manuscripts, present at conferences. How are you able to, I guess, balance that, that being, you know, having high clinical volume, but also having, you know, excellent academics? Because, you know, many people, you know, I'm sure you've heard at certain points, you know, some people say, well, you can't be a high volume clinician if you're, you know, a really good researcher or productive researcher and vice versa. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And Yeah. I mean, I think again, this is a situation where you really need to surround yourself by the right people. Um, you know, if you want to be good, good is not so hard, but to be great, you know, you really have to have the right people around you um, that are uh, able to function independently, but also collaboratively as a team that can put their egos aside and um, that their day job is, you know, an independent private practice, there's really no, and we do compensate uh, through a point system, academic productivity, but virtually every one of my partners who's fellowship trained, who are also fellowship trained, participates in some degree of research. So, um, you know, we, I'll give you an example in the, in the section of sports where we have, I think, nine attendings and then pr- about five or six primary care sports. Uh, we meet every Monday night uh, collaboratively. Each of us has two or three research coordinators. 
Uh, we raise money through philanthropy to help support these coordinators who are often, you know, looking to get through medical school, for example, to take a year to improve their uh, competitiveness for orthopedic residency or even a pre-med student. And uh, we meet, you know, tonight we met, we did cartilage basic science. Uh, last week we met, we did clinical trials shoulder, for example. And we have so much going on that we have to divide it up into, into basic science and clinical and by joint. So it could be shoulder, elbow, um, uh, knee, and um, that could be clinical and basic science. So in, within section of sports medicine. But I think that the fact is we have people that are very motivated. They're willing to spend the time writing and reviewing papers and being timely. They're willing to keep uh, collect outcomes. We use patient IQ to collect outcomes so we can we can uh, uh, basically, in a very uh, short amount of time, identify a topic that's we've prospectively collected data, and we can assign someone to it. And so, you know, I think I had 58 publications last year in 2021, and it's not because I did all this research myself. It's because we have a team of individuals who collaborate really well together. So it could be me and any number of my partners who also are interested in research. Um, and are willing to spend the time doing it. So while all of us are interested in being clinically busy, uh, you know, nighttimes besides family and exercise and whatever else we do, you know, it's not hard to spend the time reviewing uh, abstracts, papers, and things of that nature that, you know, those who are a little bit younger than us are sort of helping to keep things on the rails. And um, uh, that's really, again, just goes down to uh, surrounding yourself with people who are really excellent and have the discipline um, and the independence to actually deliver. So it's all doable, but it's it really gets down to who you have around you. Uh, I'm sure you know people who can, who can function like that, and we you know go through great efforts to intentionally bring these types of people in and who are interested in taking care of people who are ethical, who are well-trained, but at the same time have an interest in also performing research and knowing that they're not going to have a carve-out to be paid for that time. So I think those things are getting more challenging, but I think if you truly want to be in a private academic model, uh, you have to be willing to work hard. And then uh, your sort of academic philanthropy is spent uh, doing research and mentoring younger people and surrounding yourself by people who are at least as good, if not better than you are. I think that's a really interesting point, you know, building, you know, a strong team around you that can, you know, support you in many different uh, facets. I, I'm curious from your standpoint, are there any surgeons, you kind of touched on, you know, surgeons that would be a good fit for your practice model. Is there anyone who, you, I guess you would say maybe would not be a good fit or, or maybe you should consider you know, other, you know, other types of practice models. Cause I imagine this it's, although what you've built is great, it's maybe not the best fit for, for everybody. It's not for everyone. <clears throat> yeah. It's not for everyone because we have a large infrastructure. Our overhead is quite significant. And if someone is, you know, in a hospital setting, the, in the incentives are a bit different. Uh, a hospital employed physician is often on a they may be on an RVU base, but they may be on a guarantee, and the incentives are far less uh, and much different. Uh, when you're in a true private practice uh, model, um, you're exposed to all the overhead as an equity partner. So, in order to you know make it work, people have to be very like-minded and all kind of rowing in the right in the same direction. So, I think if someone is looking for more of a uh, uh, you know stereotypically nine to five type environment. Uh, that you know is really happy to be a clinician, doesn't want to be uh, burdened by the administrative aspects of practice. Everything's kind of done for them. Uh, uh, and they just like showing up, seeing patients, getting people on the surgical, surgical schedule, having consolidated 
aspects of the practice, such as scheduling and, and pre-certification and all the things involved with running a practice, that's all consolidated in one location, then that person's much better for sort of an academic environment, or excuse me, a, a hospital environment, not necessarily academic. There are then hospital academic jobs, which are maybe a step above that, where, you know, part of it is the expectation that you'll be performing research. But, you know, these are uh, the clinicians that I'm surrounded by are often very like-minded. They uh, want to develop a good reputation and maintain their reputation. They're willing to go out and meet people, to lecture, to, to go, you know, to, to lecture to potential patient groups, to work with a the physical therapist, with referring people and so forth. Um, whether it's workers' compensation or it's you know schools and sports, what have you, and at the same time they keep up to date. They're interested in leadership positions in specialty societies and so forth, um, um, and they're interested in, in publishing. Uh, that is not for everyone, uh, but you know if you choose that path and you're right for that path, then you know you'll have intellectually and emotionally, I think, a very uh, a stimulating, satisfying career. In that area, I mean, you, we provide an infrastructure that works really well for people who are motivated in that way. But as you intimated, it, it's not going to be for everyone. That's interesting. I'm curious, segueing a little bit, you know, I, we've mentioned, you know, you're the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago White Sox. And I'm just curious how you got into doing that. And then, uh, you know, what's your advice is for, you know, younger physicians looking to get involved in, you know, professional sports uh, as well. Well, most franchises require, most professional sports organizations will require uh, being certified, CAQ certified in sports, sports medicine. So it requires an individual to have a sports medicine fellowship to get out of the gates. So assuming that's the training they have, then they can either participate in team coverage, uh, either as a orthopedic surgeon with a specialty in sports medicine or primary care sports medicine. They both are pathways to get there. One is surgical and, and obviously medical. The other one is just medical, but there, there's a lot of overlap. And um, the other thing that's kind of required is it's very difficult as an individual, not part of a healthcare system, to provide all of the necessary aspects of you know what it takes to manage an organization. So another great benefit of having Rush is that you know a lot of things I deal with are, and I have nothing to do with orthopedics. It can be dermatology. It could be OBGYN for you know significant others. It could be uh, pediatrics. It could be dermatology and so forth. So we need access to an entire health system because that's just like anyone else. They have non-orthopedic, non-sport related problems as well. But it also requires issues you know dealing with exercise physiology, you know kinesiology, physical therapy, uh, rehabilitative medicine. I mean, there really is a whole plethora of specialties that go into helping manage a team, but there often is one quarterback who does it. So for us, you know, we, uh, what I think a lot of the organizations in the Chicagoland area recognized early on is that it's difficult. They had one excellent physician who was helping manage the entire enterprise, but it just isn't enough uh, for one person to do it. It really requires an army and it requires people in different specialties. So most uh, sports uh, organizations, NFL, MLS, and uh, NHL, MLS, NFL, NBA, MLB, uh, independent baseball, colleges, dance uh, troops such as uh, uh, Joffrey Ballet and so forth, they really want a health system with one person championing or quarterbacking it. So I think it first starts being in, in the right system before you can really potentially go out and sort of uh, you know uh, see if there's a, a proper arrangement to be had as a uh, as a team physician. I guess kind of going off that, I know you have your own podcast as well that you've been doing for some time now. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. I'm curious uh, what your kind of your focus sure. is and who your main audience is. 
Yeah. So Sports Medicine Weekly is our podcast and it's available on any, you know, podcast outlet that your listeners probably find your 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 podcast as well. And um it we used to be on ESPN radio for about eight years and then we switched over to the score for two years, which is the regional presence. And we just realized that radio was not a good fit for what we did. It was very inefficient. Um, radio has had, you know, challenges as far as sponsorship and buying radio time and so forth. So we elected to go out on our own and uh, be, having a podcast provides, you know, obviously the ability to get the messaging out there, leveraging your, your partnerships. We uh, raise money for supporting orthopedic research. Uh, it's a, it's a non-profit organization. So my goal initially was to just provide education and really to more to lay people. Um, on everything from nutrition, injury prevention, recovery, uh, you know, novel therapeutics, biologics, uh, regenerative medicine. I mean, anything that I think is out there that people have interest in, we can do a topic on. You know, what's the healthiest alcohol to drink? Uh, why, you know, what are all, what's a diet fad? You know, what, tell me about intermittent fasting. Um, are carbohydrates really bad? Uh, what about the supplement space? How? What about anabolic steroids? What are the downsides? We have professional athletes on. We cover a variety of topics, anything from gambling and sports medicine and gambling and sports to, um, you know, how to keep your, you know, uh, 14 year old from, uh, developing an onocleidal ligament or a, a, a little leaguer's elbow. So, um, it, it just provides a platform that's, uh, not particularly arduous that allows me to educate more than just one patient at a time. And that was really the premise. I, you know, my, my one of my missions and interests is really in educating people. I feel like I'm an educator every single day in the office for patients, and to provide a a place that I could have content developed that was very concise, compartmentalized, authoritative, uh, evidence based that um, people would find useful on virtually any topic. And I, we have, I don't even know where we could be over six, seven hundred podcasts at this point. You know, so that's what we do. And uh, we have sponsors, maybe like you do, um, that are uh, we leverage their their relationships. We do things that are very uh, consistent with their their own uh, uh, sort of business uh, mission, and um, uh, we find people that we can collaborate well with uh, for topics and so forth. So that's the, that's uh, Sports Medicine Weekly, and certainly uh, we would we'd be more than happy to feature this in any of your other episodes and link to you if that's something you'd be interested in doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we'll definitely put, you know, where we, you know, the description and uh, the links for your for your podcast in the in the show notes, so people can find it and uh, Great. Def- definitely appreciate that. My our last my last question for you is, you know, you're this very busy, you know, physician, researcher, educator, podcaster. What do you do outside of all that to kind of balance your life if you, if you can find that balance? <laughs> I feel like, you know, I give more talks on balance and leadership than I do anything else these days, but uh you know, for me, there's some, I have some passions. I like to ski, uh, for, for many years, I was climbing one mountain a year. So that's what would keep me fit and probably get back to that. I haven't done that in a couple of years. And I like to sail and even race sailboats and, and I have, uh, uh, three kids. Uh, so, and they're, you know, they're college or just after college age, well, 23, 21 and 17. So that's, you know, i like, I don't like to miss anything that they do. And, um, that's been very, that's something I placed a premium on. So, and, you know, we like to travel and so forth. So I, I, you know, I stopped working Fridays, seeing patients doing surgery many years ago. Uh, so spend time at, you know, in the, in the summers at, you know, Lake home on Fridays and I may take calls and do conferences and things like that, but I don't do any patient care on those days. So that's held by schedule quite a bit. So, uh, it's a lot, but I, I, to your point, I think achieving balance and if people want to 
sort of learn more about, you know, some of these techniques and not just that I've thought of. These are things that I've learned from a number of my mentors, my website, I've done uh, Ted talks and other, you know, educational forums that, you know, sort of talk about this exact issue. You know, my website's briancolemd.com, not too complicated. So if people are interested, you know, there's a couple of, you know, YouTube videos and so forth that are, there's one's a TEDx talk and there's some other ones. I did one last year in Switzerland talking about, you know, the, the epiphanies of a busy surgeon. Um, those are things I like to talk about because um, I think if I keep it first to mind and uh, uh, I stay fresh with that, it keeps me on task because it'd be, it's very easy to get out of balance if you don't contemplate all the different responsibilities you have and sort of keeping those in check, especially if you have a family. That's interesting. You know, it's, it sounds like, you know, you, you know, even though you're busy, you find the time and, and make the priority and, you know, make things work, which is really interesting. I'm curious, do you, do you do your sailing on Lake Michigan there in Chicago or is there somewhere else we you do. go for that? Oh, that's pretty yeah, cool. We have, we, uh, we have, um, Lake Michigan is an amazing lake for sailing, but it can also be pretty treacherous. We have seen overnight races, uh, local races, but we also, uh, in Indiana where, uh, we have a lake home, uh, has a, n- a number of really wonderful inland lakes. So we, you know, that's a lot of recreational sailing and I'll do some regattas with some, some on four tw- on, on sea scows and, and, and smaller boats with this as a crew. But, uh, there's, we have a lot of sailing in the Midwest. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Cole, really appreciate you uh, coming on and taking time on your really busy schedule. Uh, you mentioned your website. Is there anything, you know, any other platforms you're active on that you'd, you'd like the listeners uh, where they can follow you and reach out and things like that? Sure. You know, I have, uh, they can follow me at Instagram at Brian J. Cole, MD. Um, so we do a lot of educational content there. Obviously we're on Facebook and do some, a little bit of Twitter and then, uh, but I, I think my the Sports Medicine Weekly and my website Brian Cole MD is a is a really great resource and links to everything. I mean, I for me it's all been about education. I'm plenty busy clinically as a you know sports medicine. I basically do shoulder, elbow, knee, and cartilage restoration has been my area of expertise over the last 25 years. But I've really enjoyed being um, sort of in the moments, having the opportunity to teach and to mentor. And that's, I'd say the last phase of my career is going to spend a lot more time mentoring younger people to help provide opportunities for them, you know, just like people did for me as I sort of went through my career and in its development. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Cole, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I, I think the listeners will get learned a lot from this episode for sure. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me and best of luck with your show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.